If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning, continue on where we picked up last time. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray to God. Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us that wisdom that is from above, the heavenly wisdom this morning as we seek in your word the truth, the way, the life that has been promised to us through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, you continue to show us our own folly in the midst of this and that we too would be eager to repent and to seek that which is from above. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to summarize all of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, I think you could summarize it in this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You put those two things together, I think you find the summary of all of wisdom literature, but also the summary of what's taking place in our passage this morning. I think uh, both Haman and Esther are personifying this difference between the beginning of wisdom 
and the person who does not fear God. If you remember, Haman is an Agagite, which is a descendant of the Amalekites. So Haman is a Amalekite. And if you remember, the Amalekites were the people who had attacked the most vulnerable and weak members of the Israelites after they had escaped from Egypt. On their way through the wilderness, the Amalekites come and they attack the women and the children at the very end of the line. And because of that, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, Moses says they carried out this wicked scheme against the innocent because they did not fear God. And because of that, the Lord had promised to blot out their memory from under heaven altogether. And what we see is that Esther will finally be the culmination of that promise once we get to the end of the story. God had promised to keep this word, and it will be kept. God always keeps his word. So here in the book of Esther, we see Haman is no different than his depraved descendants. He too is a man who fears not God, who has concocted another wicked scheme that we read last week to kill, annihilate, and to destroy all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, it says explicitly in the same way as his descendants, as, his, uh, as the Amalekites. Because he fears not God, he is the personification of folly. Esther, on the other hand, is forced to make a decision. We, we left her last week, and Mordecai had challenged her whether or not she was going to identify herself with her people and with her God, or whether she was going to keep quiet at this time. And we see that Esther makes a choice. She chooses to fear the Lord rather than man. To fear the one who can take both soul and body and throw them into hell rather than just the one who can kill her body, if you will. And because of that, because of that choice, she is experiencing the beginning of wisdom. She has chosen the fear of the Lord. So as we continue on the story, Esther's asking Mordecai now and all the Jews to fast for her, to pray for her for three days as she prepares to beg the favor of the king and granting mercy to her and to her people to do what is unbidden. She's not supposed to approach the throne without being called to do so. And yet again, she chooses the fear of the Lord over the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. Now we have to understand, this is not a reckless act made by Esther. This is something that she has spent much thought upon, uh, weighing heavily, very carefully, the consequences that would be potentially happen to her as a result. She is not uh, you know, determined to to build without making her preparations, if you will. She understands her own weakness. She understands her vulnerability, both as a Jew as well as a woman in this ancient civilization that is against her in every way. And yet one of the sure evidences of this newfound wisdom is the fact that she recognizes she doesn't have it. She doesn't have wisdom. She doesn't have power. And so she calls upon her people to pray to God on her behalf as she and her maids are gathered around to call to God for wisdom from, from above. And as we just read in, in James and earlier on in James chapter 1, verse 5, uh, James says this, in the midst of our trials, there's a joy that can be had, but only if we're fearing the Lord, right? But he specifically says in the context of the trials that we experience, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, meaning wisdom to deal with the trials that we're facing, if anyone lacks wisdom, what should he do? Should ask God, right? Who gives generously to all without 
fault without reproach and it will be given unto him so the very fact that she and her maids are fasting for three days and praying for three days shows that she is seeking a wisdom that is from above a wisdom that she does not have that is the first sign of the beginning of wisdom is when you know you don't have it and that you need it and you call upon god to receive it it's a heavenly Wisdom, a heavenly power. The more people praying, the better. Again, James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has what? Great power as it's working. She has no power. She has status. No power. Very little wisdom. She's calling upon God to give her that wisdom from above, that power that is from God. And when the time arrives finally for her to make her move, it's that heavenly wisdom that helps her to act accordingly of not only what should be done, but how it should be done, the way in which it should be done. Again, the wisdom literature would say the way of wisdom. She's learning the ways of wisdom. I said last week at this point, Esther is not listening to the counsel of the head eunuch anymore who is just teaching her how to please the king. He's not, she's not listening to the guy who can teach her how to become more of the king's mistress and dress up for her as a doll. Rather... She's now seeking the counsel of the Lord, and now she's putting on the royal garb, the royal attire that she might be taken seriously as his queen, not as his mistress. It's interesting, though, in setting the scene for this encounter, the narrator uses the word king or royal five times in this very short passage. He keeps pointing out, it's the king, it's the king, it's the king, it's the king. It's this royal monarch sitting on his throne. We're meant to be impressed over and over again. And yet we see that now Esther also puts on her royal attire so that she can have some standing before this man who sits on his throne. Now, tomorrow, if you're reading along with us in our uh, church-wide Bible reading plan, tomorrow we'll be in Ezekiel chapter 3. And it's interesting. So a passage in there, this is it's talking about the calling of Ezekiel himself after he's seen this great vision of the glory of God. And he's told from the very beginning that people aren't going to listen to him. Don't you love that? I mean, you're going to be a preacher and no one's going to listen to anything you have to say. He's told they're not going to listen to you. They're hard of heart and they have a forehead that's hard. Hard foreheads. But it's interesting. The Lord promises Ezekiel as he's being sent to this hard-hearted, strong-foreheaded people, he says that the Lord will make his head as hard as theirs. His forehead as hard as theirs so that he can come with them with the intensity of heaven, with the zeal of the Lord to match the zeal of these men who are not willing to listen to them. In the same way, Esther is coming before this earthly king with her own royal attire, now representing not just her status as the queen, but as her status as a daughter of God. She's coming with the wisdom and the power of God. She's coming in the way of wisdom. Nevertheless, she doesn't come rashly, she doesn't come haughtily. She doesn't come with great pride. Notice even as she is about to make her first step, uh, you know, one small step for a woman, one great leap for womankind. She takes only one step into the inner court from the outer court. Now, she's not in the throne room of the king, so you have to understand there's the outer court and then there's the inner court. She literally takes just one step in and just stands there and waits for the king to see her out of the corner of his eye and as he recognizes her to see what happens from there. So she's not like walking boldly up to the king, hey, I need something. She knows the power 
that he has. She also knows that the emperor is to be honored, as we're told in the New Testament. Even though we're to fear the Lord, we're to honor the emperor. And so she does. She waits to be recognized. Immediately, we see the fruit of all that fasting, the fruit of all that prayer. When the king sees her, he's not only astonished that she's had the gall to come before him in this way, but he admires her great tenderness. Immediately, she has gained his favor. Again, this is something that the Lord has given. Uh, Remember, the Lord moves the heart of the king as a river of water. He has softened the heart of the king toward her. Immediately, he holds out his golden scepter and she touches it or kisses it, depending upon uh, your tradition. Phase one is complete. Success. Should go quickly from here, but it doesn't. Notice how the king addresses Esther, though, when he opens his mouth. Verse 3, he says, what is it, Queen Esther, what is your request? And This is the first time in the narrative in which the king actually refers to Esther as his queen. Queen Esther, he calls her. Uh, In fact, there's only one other time prior to this in which she's referred to as as the queen and only by her cousin Mordecai. But from now on, from this moment, when she's walking in the way of wisdom, when she's walking in the fear of the Lord, from this moment on, every time you hear the name Esther, it's Queen Esther. There's something that has changed in her. She has walked in the fear of the Lord and now she carries a a weightiness to her that she never had before. She's walking with God. Apparently the king is quite impressed with her, with her boldness. He immediately promises to grant her whatever she desires, whatever she requests, even up to half of his kingdom. You remember somewhere in the New Testament something similar happens? Do you remember when King Herod Antipas is watching Herodias' daughter dress or dance somewhat differently before him? He's immediately pleased by her movements and wants to grant her whatever she wants. He says the exact same statement, up to half my kingdom, it will be yours if you request it. Now, we know that... uh, from historical accounts, they're both using hyperbolic language here. They're not being literal. They're not going to give anybody half of their kingdom that would run contradictory to uh, what they want. Nevertheless, in a sense, they're both writing a blank check to these women for having pleased them in some way, for having shown courage or grace of movement in some way. And we see that in the New Testament, Herodias' daughter immediately acts upon this request and she boldly says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter and I want it now. And if you remember, immediately the king, because of the promise that he had made to her in front of all of his companions, he didn't want to lose face, he immediately sends the executioner into the jail and cuts off the head of the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. All because of the whim of a king and what he wanted. If it's that easy, you would think, well, Esther, just do the same thing. I, here's what I want. I want you to save all my people. Boom, boom, boom. Let's do it. We're done. But you'll, you'll notice she doesn't do that. Instead, we see her inviting the king along with Haman to come to a feast that she's already prepared in advance. So this isn't something she chickened out at the last minute. She had already planned in advance this dinner that she was going to hold for them because she was going to wait to ask him at a different time, in a different place. Why would she do that? We have to keep in mind a number of things. One is that this promise of the king cannot trump the laws of the Medes and the Persians, right? He's already 
signed with his official royal seal, the edict that is going to carry out the, the destruction, the annihilation of all the Jews in his kingdom. Just because he made a promise to some woman, even if it's his wife, even if it's his queen, it does not trump the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot just make that go away. In the same way, if you remember, Haman also had promised him 10,000 talents, which comes out to millions of dollars today in our currency, up to possibly half his kingdom in treasure. He's been promised that if he carries out this edict, now he would lose all that money. And then finally, he would stand to lose face with the people before whom he's making these promises. If you remember, again, it didn't take much for him to throw Queen Vashti out because of a quick, you know, a quick word that had been spoken against her. If he doesn't act upon the laws, he stands to lose his own position. And we already, I think I've told you a couple times already, later on he is killed by his own men because he had already lost trust within his kingdom later on after this event occurs. So Esther's wise. She's tactically delaying on purpose in order to have more standing, in order to have more time to come up with something that can work in this opportune moment as a segue. There's one thing we know for sure about the king. He really likes parties. Really likes feast and drinking. If you remember the first chapter, he's already held two feasts. The first one lasted 180 days. It's a lot of wine. Second one, after that one's done, immediately the next week for the whole week, he offers another one for all of his closest companions and the soldiers at arms before he takes them into battle. He loves feasts. So Queen Esther, again, she's acting as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. She's bringing him to the point where he might hear what she has to say. Notice, too, that uh, Esther is essentially taking the king off of his throne by taking him away from this place. He's in, she's inviting him to her turf, into her room, to have a feast in her place, to where now he's considered as a friend at her table, not as a king who sits over her in judgment. She's taking him out of that realm where he might make some sort of rash decision. And now, it's after he's well-fed, after the wine is freely flowing, that's finally when he asks the question again, what's your wish? It shall be granted. What's your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. But once again, we see Esther's not answering the question. Again, tactically delaying her answer. She's not afraid. There is a method to her madness. Notice in verse 8, it's a very important response that she gives here. She says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. Now, do you see what she's doing here? She's essentially having the king to agree to grant her request if he shows up. So in other words, the very fact that he comes implies that he has to keep the promise that he's going to grant her, that he will give her up to half the kingdom. And, and by the time this is all said and done, four times the king promises to give her what she asked for. She keeps making him say it again and again and again. And if you show up and if you bring Haman, then it's guaranteed you're going to give me what I'm asking for. It's really quite fascinating how she's, uh, she has him literally eating out of, his, out of her hand. 
What's amazing, though, is that the same woman with whom the king was apparently bored with just days prior is now enamored with her. I mean, if you remember, uh, he hadn't called her into his bedchamber for 30 days. For over a month, he was bored with her when she was living to please him. But the minute that she's willing to live out of fear of the Lord, he's curious. He's challenged by her. If you remember, you remember after he had Vashti either vanished or killed, we don't know which, he was very sorry that it had happened because he was enamored by her. Why? Because she didn't do what he always said. She actually had a mind to think for herself, and he really regretted, go back to that chapter, he regretted the decision that he made, even though she made him look like a fool. He missed her. And now that Esther is living for God and living to please God rather than just to please Him, he, he's enticed. We see that the king is uh, really enamored by her now that she's obedient to a higher calling. There's just something about a woman who fears the Lord. Amen? A woman to be praised, the book of Proverbs says. The one who fears the Lord. There's something different about her when she speaks and how she delays when she answers and she clearly is looking for some higher calling than just what most men and women look to. There's something about the beginning of wisdom. It's beautiful. Now compare that to Haman, the man who does not fear the Lord, who we see time and time again playing the role of the fool in so many different ways. Already we've seen his petty desires, he, he, he so craves the praise of men, so quickly takes offense at anyone who does not give it to him. That's what caused this whole stink in the first place when Mordecai refused to bow down to him. But this time it's different. This time, Haman has everything. You couldn't have anything more than what Haman had. He was the second in all of the Persian Empire, had all the authority, all the power, He's, he's rubbing shoulders with the king and queen daily, eating in their table and enjoying their parties. Joking with them. Palling around with them. And yet, it doesn't take much to change his happiness. It says when he leaves the palace, he's full of joy and gladness. Not in the spiritual sense of joy, but he's full of gladness for all of a brief moment. But then he sees Mordecai sitting at the gate refuses to bow before him, refuses to stand up before him, refuses to respect him in any way, Haman is absolutely irate. His happiness is gone immediately, like a fleeting fantasy. He's lost every aspect of anything good in his heart. He's lost it all because he can't accept the fact that one person doesn't like him. One person doesn't praise him, cheer him, celebrate him. You would think Mordecai would have learned his lesson. You think? Mordecai, you know, if you were Mordecai, you'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry I caused all this. Like all my family members, all my friends, all of my entire race of people are going to be killed because of my decision not to bow before Haman. But he's not apologetic here. He's even more determined not to show honor to this fool named Haman. He, he refuses to change his mind. 
There's something more to it than that. It's interesting if you've been keeping up with the news at all. Uh, there have been at least three or four women, famous women, stars in Hollywood and, and others, who have spoken out against the transgender movement. And if you remember, each time they're basically saying a woman is not a woman just because they say they're a woman, but they're a woman because they're a woman, right? Well, I applaud them for trying to tell the truth about something, but it's interesting, as soon as they're done with that statement, within seconds, within minutes, immediately flood of hate mail comes in, right? Death threats come in. They lose contracts. They lose jobs. And within an hour, in most cases, I I looked at all four of these women, within an hour, all of them gave a public apology for daring to think for themselves. Immediately apologized and basically said, anyone who says they're a woman, they can be a woman. Just leave me alone. That's what they said. Not surprising. Now, I'm not beating up women. Men do the same thing. We see in the sports world, men have done something similar. Within minutes, they're giving some fake apology. Oh, I didn't mean what I said. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Just leave me alone. I think that's the difference between someone who pleases man only and one who pleases God. You see, Mordecai's not backing down because he's not living to please man. He's not living to get the applause of man. He's not living out of fear of man. He's living out of fear of God. And so he still stands out for what he knows to be right. He's not going to bow before this fool, this man who has not earned his position. Somehow he has gotten in the good graces of the king. He does not deserve it. So he does not bow before him. That makes Haman irate. He will not be happy until everyone celebrates him, accepts him. After experiencing that strong sense of disapproval by an agaphobe like Mordecai, Haman escapes to his safe space, gathers around him his wife and his closest confidants, his closest friends, so he can ask for their counsel, but really what he's doing, he's entering into an echo chamber. He wants to hear them say, he's so great. Because that's what he lives for. That's his idol. He's not following the counsel of James that we read earlier in chapter 4. Haman never stops to ask himself, why am I so angry? What is it that I really want? Why would I lose my temper over this one guy who cannot bow before me? Why does that make me so upset? James says over and over again, you have to be able to ask yourself that question, which we often don't do in in the midst of our anger. Why are you angry? What is it that you want? And and every single time, it's because we think we're the king of the universe. We think we're the queen. Everyone has to bow before us. Everyone has to submit to our will. Everyone has to do what we want or else what? We give them our wrath. That's foolishness in a nutshell. It's sin. Enraged sin. James says our passions rage within us because we can't have what we want. And he says, and you don't pray for it. You don't get it because you don't pray for it. But even when you pray, you ask for the wrong reasons to spend it on your own lust because you don't know the mind of God. You don't know the will of God. You don't want the will of God. You want your own will, which is why you're so angry. We talk about the, the Lord's Prayer. I've mentioned this to you probably too many times. You probably get sick of me saying it, but it's so simple. It's so complex. It's so meaningful. When the Lord teaches us how to pray, what does He say? First three requests. Hallowed be what? Your name. Whose kingdom? 
Your kingdom come. Whose will? Your will be done. When we pray, what do we pray? Hallowed be my name. Protect my kingdom. I want my will. We may not admit to it, but that's what we want. That's what makes us angry. Because someone has disrespected our name. Someone has put a step in the midst of our planning for our kingdom. Someone has disregarded our will. It's pure foolishness. The essence of sin. Because our world is upside down. We're supposed to be creatures who live for God, but instead we live for ourselves, you see. That's what makes us so angry. Even in church, when you get angry with someone else in church, you forget. This is the reason why. Because you're still living for another kingdom that's not God's. That's what makes us so crazy. So ridiculously crazy because we're trying to live for the wrong kingdom. James tells us we get angry because we don't get what we want. What we want is wrong. Haman wants the wrong things. That's why he has gotten so angry. Why does it matter if one person doesn't like him? Why does it matter if one person refused about it? Who cares? But like the fool who boasts loudly of his own accomplishments, listen to Haman as he's listing off this long condition. Look, look how great I am. Look at all that's happened. He speaks of his great riches. Again, if he can give 10,000 talents to the king, he's obviously rich. All the number of his sons. It's funny, he's telling his wife this. Look at all the number of sons I have. I think she would know. All of his promotions, all of his honors, even how recently he's been rubbing shoulders again with the king and the queen. But none of that makes him happy. For a fleeting moment, he's in the king's palace. He, 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 can, he can taste paradise for a moment. But immediately it's ripped from his hands because he demands it all for himself. He has to have the glory. He, he has to have his name hallowed, a sign of a fool. He cannot find joy in the Lord. He's trying to find joy in his circumstances, and it will never happen because every single moment of our lives, things change. We lose it. Money flies away. People dislike us. Things change. The kingdoms change. We lose so much. You cannot base your joy upon your circumstances. It has to be based upon the one unchanging being in all the universe. It has to be based upon the fact that he loves me. I've been reading a book by Carl Truman very slowly. I called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, it's a great book, if I understand it correctly. In the book, he's basically saying the reason why we have all this identity politics that's going on in the world today is because when people cannot find their identity in Christ, they're going to look for it anywhere else. And then they're going to demand that other people praise them because God doesn't praise them. Do you understand that? That's the problem that we have in our day. That's why we're fighting over so many things today is because we cannot get our praise, our commendation from God. When I raise my hands at the end of the service and I tell you, God is pleased with you who have faith in Jesus Christ that God is giving His blessing upon you rather than His curse because you've trusted in Christ. If you don't trust in Christ, God has no no commendation for you, only condemnation. Because we play the fool. We are not the wise man. We are not the protagonist in the story. Christ is. We're the villain. We're the antagonist. We're the rebel who has tried to overthrow God's kingdom. You see. The problem is though, we often don't even recognize this when we're trying to give counsel to others. Oftentimes when we see that someone else has the same struggles as us, we want to 
assure them it's okay. It's okay. It's not so bad. We're not loving them if we don't tell them about their sin. We don't love people if we celebrate what is evil. Of course, that it's not the case only for those loving themselves, but for us who seek to offer love to them when our love is not correcting love. It's just an affirming love when we're affirming evil. It doesn't make sense at all. So Haman gathers around him all of these yes men along with his wife. The funny thing is later on in chapter 6, we're told that these men are his wise men. But as David read earlier, this is not the wisdom that's from above. It's a demonic wisdom that they're giving him. It's a demonic wisdom that his wife is giving him. A sure sign of a fool is one who surrounds himself with fools. Haman wants to hear the counsel of fools. Haman wants to hear those who are going to tell him what he already wants to know. And so their counsel, instead of saying, hey man, you just need to overlook this. You, you, you need to repent of your idolatry. You need to repent of your sin and, 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 and live for God. I mean, they don't even have that in their, in their worldview. Instead, they immediately affirm Haman and they try to give him what he wants, which is the very thing that God refuses to give him because his passions are to spend on his own lust. And so basically, his wife speaks up on behalf of them and tells him, well, how about you just build this gallows in the air, 75 feet in the air, not only to kill your enemy, but to utterly humiliate him. And then she says, then you can have joy as you eat in the king's presence. So she said, if you murder someone, then, then you can have joy. Makes perfect sense. Doesn't it sound like wisdom from above? Zeresh is telling him this. Again, think about think, the average telephone pole is 35 feet tall. This is a 75 foot pole. Twice as tall. Ridiculously tall. Don't need to be that tall. Again, it's not, it's not a gallows for the purpose of hanging and, and hanging. In the Persian Empire, they didn't really hang uh, criminals, they impaled them. So it's sort of an early version of the cross or the crucifix. Very painful death. It was meant to humiliate them in addition to killing them. But this is the tallest execution, I think, that ever occurred in the Persian Empire. No one ever would have built something that tall. If you think about it, even the palace itself apparently was 45 feet tall. So theoretically, as he is drinking wine from the palace window, he can look out and see his enemy being impaled on the pole and be joyful about it. Clearly, demonic wisdom. This is not the wisdom that's from above. Of course, there's a... Haman immediately loves this idea. They give him exactly what he wants, and he decides he's going to have this built overnight. And so he immediately goes out and has men construct this so that he can carry out the evil deed. Now, this is a problem. It's a pretty huge problem for, for this reason. If you remember, Esther so wisely is delaying, tactically delaying, Everything she said so that she can put everything in place so that she can hopefully get a, a, a good response from the king. But unbeknownst to her, Haman has now gone out and is within hours away of killing the one that she loves the most. So even if she preserves the lives of her fellow Jews, her cousin Mordecai is going to be dead by noon tomorrow. Huge problem. 
then there's the irony of all the matter. The irony is the fact that after the king, if you remember the king had passed that ridiculous edict that every man should be the master of his own household, that his wife should do whatever he says. We see the number one in the empire and the number two man in the empire now are listening to the counsel of their wives and doing what they say. See, this is something that God is purposely overturning this edict to show that other edicts can be overturned as well. What would happen? Would God also overthrow the edict against the Jews that's left up for tomorrow, for next week? Strangely, that we might expect that the next chapter would immediately pick up with the next supper, the next feast. Esther's going in and she's going to say whatever words, but by that point, Mordecai may already be dead. But what we find instead is that it's still in the evening hours. The king is about to go to sleep. He can't sleep. And God begins to move the heart of the king again in whatever way he wishes. So that the way of wisdom overrules the way of folly. That's what we're going to find. If you don't know by now, the way of folly always leads to destruction every single time. Because sin is deceitful, it never, ever, 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 ever delivers what it promises. Never. Anyone who follows in the way of folly, it always leads to the house of death. It always leads to the house of hell. So we find that uh, God can only satisfy our soul with that true wisdom that comes from above. And the New Testament tells us that Everything that's written here in the Old Testament, including the book of Esther, is meant to point us to Christ. If you want to know the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that is from heaven, it is incarnated in Christ as He comes down from heaven to show us what is true wisdom. It's not the wisdom that demands my own way. It's the wisdom that's willing to lay down my own desires and wants for the sake of someone, of the only one, who is worthy of that praise, who is God. Again, I'll tell you this, uh, the hard part is I think most of us love the book of Esther because we think sometimes that we're like Esther, (laughs) but that's not how we're meant to read this. (laughs) Uh, Esther is meant to point us to Christ. Haman is supposed to help us see what we look like. If you think about it, even when you read the book of Proverbs and it talks about the way of the fool and the way of the wise men, who do you relate to more? We hope that we relate to the wise men more, but in reality, if you look at a lot of the different Proverbs, it takes it from a lot of different angles to help us see, indeed, there are many, many ways in which we manifest the way of folly rather than the way of wisdom. And so Haman is going to die because he refuses to repent of his folly. Esther, on the other hand, we see, is experiencing the beginning of wisdom because for the first time she lays down her life, willing to lay down her life in order to take up a new life. This is the way of wisdom. She has to die in order to live. We have to die in order to live. We have to repent of our own sins and admit that we are the fool. God doesn't save wise people. He only saves fools. God doesn't save powerful people. He only saves weaklings. And when you recognize that you are the fool, that you are the weakling, that you are the rebel against God's kingdom, and you say, I need to perish in order that Christ might live in me, then then you know the fear of the Lord. You have the beginning of wisdom. 
Apart from that, whatever way you're trying to lead is only going to lead to destruction. All of your ways will be frustrated. It will only lead to death. Simple response is simply to look to Christ. He is the treasures, the riches of wisdom come down from heaven that we might know what it means to live. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us to see clearly who and what we really are. We pray that You would help us to see something, the beginning of wisdom. As we learn the fear of the Lord, as we learn to die to ourselves and to look to Christ for life, Lord, we pray that we would not walk in the way of Haman any longer, that we would not demand that others love us and celebrate us and praise us, that we would not demand that they go along with our kingdom and our will. Lord, teach us to be servants. Teach us to take up Christ as our Lord and Master. And help us to walk in the freedom of that, we pray.